You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with The Bible is Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with The Bible as Literature podcast. On his 80th birthday, Father Paul takes a step back from his regular weekly address to deliver a special farewell message to his students over the years and all those with ears to hear. The biblical story is a message of entrapment, as though there is no hope, and yet it is presented to you as the words of hope. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. I am delighted to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. God willing, our regular program will resume next week. Let's go for the total picture as I did in my latest book. The Bible is one, oneness, and things are interrelated. And I gave much importance in my latest book about the center of a book or the center of scripture. Let me say a few words about that. Remember, I say that Psalms 78, 80, and 82 are in the middle of the book of Psalms. And I'm convinced this is intentional. But in my decoding, I took my time to explain how Jeremiah and Ezekiel are in the middle of the entire Old Testament. And again, it is on purpose. And they are in the middle the latter Nebi'im, and the Nebi'im is the center of Scripture. Now, let me say a few extra words here, which I have said also in my commentaries, that you have one prophet in Jerusalem speaking against Jerusalem, and another one outside Jerusalem speaking against Jerusalem, which means that is the message of the Bible which is against our ego, not the outsider. The outsider is in passing. Now, another word about that, which is important, and here even NATO scholarship has written a lot about that, that the story and personality of Moses is a retrospect of Jeremiah, and by the same token, Ezekiel would be Aaron, but the belittled Aaron, he comes after Jeremiah, and he picks up the book of Jeremiah that was thrown in the river, and he functions practically as a prophet. In other words, the priesthood is totally emasculated in the books of the Nabi'im, you remember. The priest has the Torah, but the Nabi has the Dabar, meaning that the Dabar dislodges the classic Torah, and it molds it into a series of the Barim, as we hear in the book of Deuteronomy, that is addressed to the generation that is about to enter the earth of the promise. So the wings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I said this already in my books, the second one on the prophets, that Isaiah is the story of God with his city. And the 12 prophets, if you take them together, it's the same thing. Now Isaiah begins by dynamiting the sacrifices and chapter 66 by dynamiting the building. 
the small prophets begin with Hosea, where he says the people are harloting. And the last book reminds everybody of the law and the prophets. And it is addressed to those who are reinstated and yet with a threat if they don't abide by the law of Moses, God is going to send a curse on the land, which is again Ezekiel. Everything is interconnected. Now, in Ezekiel, very interestingly, chapter 20, and I gave them statutes that are for their ill. It's a powerful text because they are not listening. And this is how the entire book, the entire scripture is woven. And even if you take them section by section. Now this gives the clear impression whatever is presented to the people is a setup in view of their fall because this is where the authors begin. They are under the boot of the heirs of Alexander. They are already downtrodden and if you want punished but the theory is that by their own God not by the power of the assailant. And this is their starting point. In other words, they are in the pit and they need to say something to the people who are with them in the pit. And since they are in the pit, this means that whatever assumedly was told earlier did not produce a good result. And this is not because God is evil but he is the judge and the people did not listen. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 20. Now from this perspective, and remember in my paper I said that I didn't ask you to follow all these things, which is silly, he tells Jeremiah, but I asked you to follow my voice. And the voice produces a dabar. It does not produce a Torah on a building as the priests were able to read. So the lengthy four books describing the services and the building, technically there was no building, there was a tent. And as I keep repeating, the addressees did not get into the land. In other words, they were never privy to that great temple of which the Lord is speaking in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So it becomes ridiculous. Why is it? It is, and my word is entrapment. God is setting up the hearer not the people of the story, because the people of the story disappeared already. You're talking to their progeny, the way Ezekiel speaks to the progeny in Babylon, not because this progeny has sinned, but because their father sinned. And yet Ezekiel is not nice to them. As theology goes, the downtrodden you speak now. No, it is God that is speaking and is threatening the downtrodden. If the downtrodden do not follow God's statutes, he is going to punish them where they are. And you have it at the end at 20, which was termed by a famous German Roman Catholic Old Testament scholar, the anti-Exodus. In the first Exodus, God saves everyone. In Ezekiel 20, 
he gets the people out in order to judge them in the wilderness of the nations. And only some of them enter the land, which is fantastic. Here again, Ezekiel is very important. Ezekiel spells out the biblical thesis. That is the plan of God. He brings the people to his mountain in the wilderness in order to issue to them the law on the basis of which they will be judged. And then the rest of the story is judgment after judgment, which tells us that is the thesis of the Bible. Now, pushing back to the book of Genesis, that is the basis of everything that speaks at the time of the fathers of the people, and even beyond that, in the first 11 chapters, about Ha'adam in general. And already there, we have this funny, technically silly story, which is the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was planted by whom? By God himself. Why would he do that? Why would he plant a tree and then tell the man, you may not touch it? Which is against the grain of the last verses of chapter 1, where God says to the man, you and your ilk, which are the other nefesh hayah, the earthly animals, are to eat from the grass and the trees. And yet, out of the blue, we have an interdiction regarding that specific tree. And notice, the tree of life is not mentioned because the message is that Adam and Eve were living because they were eating from the tree of life. And the punishment at the end, that they were not allowed anymore to eat from that tree, and there is death. But this comes upon their disobedience. The command which is silly, let me repeat, the command is not to eat from that tree. So why did you plant it? Precisely to have the people tested because if there is no test then the judgment is not a righteous judgment and the best example for all of us is that the teacher teaches should be enough at the end you took notes just learn them but then you have an exam but the exam is not only to make sure that the students understood but also to fail those who didn't get it. And the F is something sacrosanct in the NATO countries. I was told early, you don't give Fs, Father Paul, because F means that the poor guy has to repeat the semester. I was not aware of that during my time in the French system. F means that you go for a make-up in September. And I gave someone an F, and they told me, and I went to him, I apologize. He said, no, Father Paul, I need to retake the course. And that's why there is no hope for the North Americans to enter the kingdom. And Father Paul Laser, may rest in peace, was very upset when I said this in one of the summer institutes. He said, how can you say that, Father Paul? I said, I say it. Because they don't deal with the F. It's not part of their reality. But in the Bible, it is not so. And this is shown, again, to go back to the book of Ezekiel, where the new covenant, the latest, the newest covenant, is not free of charge. You have to follow this time the dictates, which means it is another chance for you. Now, let's go back 
to the books of Moses, where we see already the idolatry of Aaron while Moses was on the mountain. And then the tablets were broken, and then you had already a renewed covenant. That's a fantastic story. Then and there, technically, while God was writing the words of his Debarim, the people were breaking them. It's an unbelievable story. That's why it is a story. Whether you believe it or not is immaterial. What is material that it says what it says. And that's what I dislike about theology across the board that uses a lot of this, many times this experiment. It is impossible. It cannot be. God would not do that and so on and so forth. In the Bible, he seems to be doing exactly these things. This thesis is not only at the heart of scripture, but it is also retrojected and also projected as in the last book of the lesser prophets. You have to abide by that. And then, as I keep saying, the Ketubim's function is still the writ of Israel that is to be heard in the synagogues, but its topic is already the Gentiles, and it's written against their wisdom. Notice how the Septuagint, very intelligently, I think this is the work of the original author. In the Hebrew, the first book is Psalms. In the Septuagint, the first book is Job, which is, with all due respect to NATO scholarship, it's not a book about true wisdom. It is a book anti-human wisdom. And thus, if you hear this book in the subject number one, then you're ready to listen to the story of Psalms, which I gave in my books the same title as Isaiah, the story of God with his city that he transforms from Jerusalem into Zion, which I repeatedly have shown that it is Tadmor Bamidbar. So this tension in Scripture is carried into the New Testament. Let me cover it. Again, if we go by the center, you notice that at the center, or if you like, the hinge between the four Gospels and then Paul happens through Acts. You have the central book of Romans, which is addressed to the rulers of the Roman Empire. And you have the same thing there. Imagine it's a letter bringing the so-called good news to the Romans. And then suddenly, in chapter 11, Paul is threatening them. Paul is neither a priest nor a pastor. He is an apostle. He's threatening them by telling them, don't you imagine that because of the color of your eyes, I'm going to be nice to you? No. He said, I was not nice to an original branch of the tree. As for you, you were grafted into that tree. How much easier it is for God to break it off. It is unbelievable. And that is the tune of scripture. Let's go to Matthew. You have at the beginning the eschatological law of the Messiah. Matthew 5, 6, 7. And then in chapter 25, we have the bad news. And you hear it before the end of the chapter that tells the disciples to go to all nations and repeat his words. So 25 and 28 are interconnected. It is unbelievable. The judgment is before 
the famous universal mission. And that reminds you of whom? Of Ezekiel. Because in 25, suddenly at the judgment, whether half or 49% or it does not matter, you have a block of sheep and a block of goats that are cursed by the Father of Jesus Christ. Meaning, you the hearer of Matthew 28, don't start imagining that things are going to work. No! Because you don't know whether you are a goat and a sheep. In my last podcast, I started Leviticus, and it's interesting where the author deals with the lamb on the goat in the same way. If you have a lamb, it tells you what to do with it. If you have a goat, it tells you what to do with it. Which means that de facto, for a shepherd, these two animals are equal in value. It's just the goat gives more trouble because it likes to go on its own. But then in Matthew, that differentiation between sheep and goat is pushed to the extreme, meaning that you are going to be judged. And hence, ultimately, I'm asking everybody to learn from my coinage that we should stop referring to the Bible as good news. That's what we, Judeo-Christians, but it's just news. And mainly, as I say, it's bad news. This is its internal fabric. Listening to it as a literature, time and again and again, you could see it. Already I showed it in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Genesis 4, you have Cain, the only remaining son of Adam. And then... He has a genealogy, which is not referred to as Toledot, intentionally. And it culminates with uh, Lamech the Malik. That's bad news. That's why it's dumped. But where do you get the other son? You get it at the end of chapter 4, who specifically is presented as the one who took the place of Abel that Cain had slaughtered. Beautiful. And with this you have the Adamic genealogy, where Cain is totally eliminated. He is salvaged through the name Canaan. And then his son Enoch is transformed completely from someone after whom a city of stones was named. And then you have him in number seven in the Toledot of Adam as being the one who lived only 365, very interestingly. So the stupid statement in the West, may you live as Methuselah, it's bad news. It should be changed, may you live as Henoch, but we don't like it because it's short compared to Metisuela. But, and you know my theory, let's not repeat it here, twice we are told that he ambled with God, and that's why he did not die according to the text. He just was not, which means he remains in his message, in his story. And his name, interestingly, means renewal. Let's move to Noah. Again, very powerful. It's a sad story, Noah. He is the champion, the father of three at the same time, of the entire humanity. And he goes through the flood. And he was Sadiq and Tam, Tamim. And later, Abram is asked to be like him. Walk in righteousness and in fullness, which means like Noah. And he presented a sacrifice to God, whose odor was well-pleasing to God. 
And yet he ended up planting a vineyard, and we know the rest of the story. Why should he be better than God himself, who planted a vineyard, according to Isaiah? And it was not good news. Noah drank. He became at least non-sober, and he reintroduced the curse. But people always say the curse is against Canaan and so on. And, nah, you're not listening to the story. Canaan is not around yet. He's not functional. It's Noah that introduced the curse because he introduced temptation and Ham fell for it. And Jacob has again a similar sad story. Then David has again a similar sad story after Saul and Solomon and all the rest of the kings. We know that. So when one realizes that this is time and again, it's irritating. Remember the statement in the New Testament. And who could be saved? That is precisely the correct reaction to the message of Scripture. Who could be? It's impossible. And yet the gospel say what is impossible for man is possible for God. When he will turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh with the proviso that we keep them that way. And here for the Orthodox, and I'm so irritated about the theology of baptism, you have it in the rubrics that you pray that this child or the baptized, it doesn't matter, would keep the white robe untainted until the day of the Lord. But theology usually presents baptism as though it is the end of the story. That's why you have lessons and you prepare the people and so on and you culminated. And here, uh, I like this NATO tradition. NATO is not all bad that they call the graduation festivity, commencement exercises. I love the combination of these two words. In other words, you're starting now. Now, okay, we declared you MD. Well, are you an MD or not? We have to wait 25 years to decide. So we have it in human traditions also. Even those that are not so wise, why should it not be in the Bible? But obviously in the Bible there is extreme that ultimately it is telling you that actually all those graduated from medical school proved that they were not MDs. To put it in other words, we have to switch from referring to the Bible as a mashal in the sense of parable, but in the sense of hyperbole. Like it's an extreme case. And then you realize that don't bet your life that there is no worry for you because you know that you are a sheep. Matthew 25 reminds all of this. We don't know. Notice, is the king that separates these from those. The text doesn't say the sheep went to the right and the goats went to the left. No. There is a separation, a judgment. And because the judgment is righteous upon all the people, Gentiles and Israel, remember, God judges the habitation, the Adama of Adam, there is an interesting text in the law where even the Adama has to be purified from its own sin.
It's unbelievable. And if we're not hearing the Bible, I count the word entrapment, you can choose any other word. It is as though there is no hope, and yet it is presented to you as the words of hope. It's unbelievable. Your reaction to it when you hear Matthew 5, 6, 7 is way before Peter. Who could be saved? Yes, but to irritate you, the author of Matthew continues after chapter 7. He has chapter 8 and 9 and 10 until 28, which means your question is theoretically valid, but not practically. That's another coinage of mine. Against all theology and philosophy that are basically theoretical. Can you imagine a book of 600 pages written about the human soul? And then you end up with this statement in Romans, which is very interesting, that Abram, who is presented as the prototype, the example of the man of faith is presented as an example to all humanity. Very interesting. Okay, you have it in this phraseology in chapter 4, which is basically about Abraham, who is the father of all believers, nations, as well as Jews. When he believed impossibly. Verse 18, I like it. In hope, he believed against hope. Let me make it resonate. In hope, he believed against hope. You remember the story of chapter 16 when God promised him and he said, come on. I don't have a child, and I'm 99, and my wife lost her menstruation. But God told him, and in hope, he believed against hope, and notice the phraseology, so that, which is ina in Greek, he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your descendants be. Okay? And this is actualized later in chapter 18. So he's not a father of one child. He is the father of all nations. Many, that's what it means. As many as they are. Then we have to do the same thing. Let me go back to verse 11. He receives circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. Remember, it's a sign. But this is not how Jews deal with circumcision and Christians after them deal with baptism which is presented as a circumcision by Paul which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them and likewise the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's unbelievable. But he prepared for that in chapter 3 when he said the Jew is not who is outside a Jew showing off, but it is through obedience. 
the funny thing is that we know all that. But then we follow the example of our ungodly forefathers of Alexandria, because all forefathers are ungodly according to Psalm 78, and we start theologizing. And when you go to churches throughout, not only NATO countries, but also in the Middle East, especially the Orthodox, are so self-righteous. Just take a video and ask a psychologist. He will tell you that's a perfect video to explain to my students what self-righteousness is. So we're useful for something after all. Why not? Ultimately, we need to learn to stop pontificating about scripture as the tradition of the Holy Fathers is, but to submit to it as Paul requested from us. Ultimately, not being co-shepherds with God, but being dumb sheep in the flock of the Most High. How about that? Sounded good. Okay. Lest I be remiss, I would like to say openly at the hearing of all my special gratitude to four people who over the years were part of the work I have done. They were not just listeners slash spectators, but they really gave of their mind and time to help me out to produce what I have produced over the years. And I'm going to go over them, not by value, they are all valuable for me, but chronologically how they appeared and worked with me chronologically. The first one is Professor Iskandar Abushar, And I had the honor to have him as part of the first class I had when I started teaching in 1970 at Balamand. And he became my colleague and taught at Balamand for many years. And for one year, he was the locum tenens dean when they were looking for a new dean. Well, without him, just to put things very quickly and plainly. The four volumes of intro to the New Testament would not have been written the way they were written. He is practically the co-author of these four books. And you have guessed, he has also influenced me and helped me in many points of my research. And he published lately with OCAPS his famous thesis. His book's title is Rereading Isaiah 40 through 55 as the project launcher for the books of the law and the prophets. Second in line, is Tom Dykstra, who was my student at St. Vladimir's Seminary. And while he was still a student, it was unbelievable, he edited my huge commentary on Galatians that I produced on two levels, you know, hoping that the people would dig in and so on. But they didn't do that, so I reverted to my commentaries the way you can see them in the 
Chrysostom Bible series. But he worked hard to practically reform, not only in English, but also in the presentation, Galatians, which has been a momentous book that influenced a lot of the younger colleagues who wrote themselves. Now, he then proceeded to edit the entire introduction series, the three volumes of Old Testament introduction and the four volumes of New Testament introduction. He was the editor. And ultimately, he published with us an expanded version of his MDiv thesis that was lauded at the faculty council by the late John Mayendorf. Hallowed be thy name, the name-glorifying dispute in the Russian Orthodox Church on Mount Athos in 1912 through 1914. And then he published his other book, which is on scripture and very important, and I would suggest that all of you read it, Mark Canonizer of Paul. And you look at intertextuality in Mark's gospel. And his book was endorsed in three blurbs by two world-renowned biblical scholars. One, you heard of him so many times on my lips, Thomas Brody, the director of the Dominican Biblical Institute in Ireland, and he is the author of the famous The Birthing of the New Testament. The second endorsing blurb was written by David Trobisch, a name you've heard also several times on my lips, who is the author of the first edition of the New Testament, his top scholar in the matter of actual manuscripts. And he asked me also to say a few words in a blurb myself. So it's very impressive that this theories that Mark is presenting in a story form, the Gospel of Paul, is endorsed by three scholars, a Roman Catholic, a Protestant, and an Orthodox. And I would recommend that my listeners would read it. To him, my gratitude, and please keep him in your prayers, at one point, he had to deal with health issues that did not allow him to continue to edit my work. At that point, I appealed to my very, very good friend since the first year of my priesthood in the parish of St. George of Danbury, Connecticut, Mrs. Mary Lee Sergi, she and her husband were my closest friends over the years. And she is capable. She was for 21 years the administrative assistant of the president of the Western Connecticut University in Danbury. She has skill in both language and also editing. And I asked her and she committed to edit my books, starting with the one commissioned by Metropolitan Philip that I write about land and covenant, which was the basis of my commentary on Genesis, because I use Genesis a lot about the land. And she edited this book, and then I decided to launch this Chrysostom series, and she edited all my commentaries. 
Then, as though this was not enough, she edited also my latest books that sum up my entire thesis regarding the Bible, The Rise of Scripture and Decoding Genesis 1 through 11. Now, I use her very often, and I'm sure you heard this on the podcast, to shame the people who come up with excuses in sin. Namely, it's difficult, we can't, and you use the Greek, and you use the Hebrew, and all the blah, 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 which is nonsensical, which tells me that the people do not want to put the effort to deal with the original scripture, not the scripture through translations and theology. Now, mind you, and that is the point, that she knows neither Hebrew nor Greek. And the people always ask me, how does she do that? That's my point. She made the effort to understand, because, you know, I transliterate the Hebrew and the Greek, so she can read the transliteration, and then ask me question. We would spend hours discussing these things until she get what I'm writing. And then if my English is poor, as Tom Dykstra realized before her, then she would improve on it. And then she would come back to me. Obviously, ultimately, I read because the book is under my name and I publish it. But this is the ultimate example of commitment and dedication to the work. Imagine the hours that this asked from her. So this is what you're seeing, Land and Covenant, 12 commentaries, and the two very difficult last books. Which means it is feasible if you are not expressing what Isaiah called your lip service. And that's why now you understand why I'm not impressed by the people who are bent while listening to me and taking notes. That's not enough. You have to digest it and be able to say it to the others. To her, my eternal gratitude and last, and in no way least, again, I'm talking chronologically, a former student of mine from the Balaman years, during the last years, I gave intensive courses at Balaman, which is the late 90s of last century. It's Father Jorge Suez, or Padre Jorge Suez, from Chile, who committed himself, after having attended a few Zoom sessions with me, to translate my work in Spanish, so that we can offer it as free PDF on the OCAB's web. You know, our policy is that anything in English we charge so that we can cover our expenses. We don't make money. I do not get any remuneration for my books published with OCAB's. Anything in Arabic and in Spanish is offered free of charge. And he committed himself 
And he showed Father Timothy and me his meticulous approach. He would check with us to see whether I meant to say what I meant to say so that he can put it correctly in Spanish out of fear of not being faithful to the original text. That's how he puts it. And he's continuing doing the work. You can open the website and check. He has already translated Genesis, Joshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Johannine writings, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesus and 2 Thessalonians, my latest book in the series, Philippians, Colossians, Hebrews, and the pastoral letters. And he is working on the rise of scripture also. He volunteered to do that. So I really, for my own sake and before God, did not want to be remiss to mention these four names that should be in your memory and mind and prayers over the coming years. Iskandar Abushar, Tom Dykstra, Mrs. Mary Lee Sergi, and then Padre Jorge Suez. Once more to them, my, I can't say eternal because it contradicts my understanding of the human being that we are all passing. But my truthful gratitude. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.